Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome all of you here for what I think will be a very interesting and timely and provocative discussion. Uh, some of my friends have said to me the last few days, David, you're a classical liberal and a skeptic. Why are you hosting an event on the conservative soul? Well, I think this is a time when libertarians and Goldwater conservatives and civil liberties liberals should all be concerned about the growth of government in Washington, um, the growth of government in, from both big government liberalism and big government conservatism. Uh, the kinds of things that Andrew Sullivan talks about in his new book are of broad concern um, and I think there's been some evidence of that lately. Uh, the Cato Institute published this paper called Power Surge, the Constitutional Record of George W. Bush, that talked about the various ways the Bush administration is um, violating the Constitution, undermining the principles of federalism and limited government and individual rights, and it drew a lot of attention on all sides of the political spectrum. My colleague Stephen Slavinsky last month published a book called Buck Wild, How Republicans Broke the Bank and Became the Party of Big Government, in which he focused on the fiscal record of the Republican Party, and that got a lot of attention. And just yesterday on our online magazine, Cato Unbound, uh, which if you have not visited it, you should, CatoUnbound.org, we have coasts of the Daily Coast talking about why libertarians should vote Democratic instead of Republican these days and trying to make the case that there is a libertarian wing of the Democratic Party. Since I've kind of given up on there being a libertarian wing of the Republican Party, I'd love to believe Coase is right. I'm not yet entirely persuaded. But uh, uh, the article is interesting, and there will be responses throughout the month on the Cato Unbound website so people can monitor the discussion there. But today, we're going to turn to one of America's most prominent public intellectuals to talk about the conservative soul, how we lost it, how to get it back. Andrew Sullivan uh, probably first came to prominence as uh, what you might call the gay British Catholic conservative who edits the leading American liberal magazine, The New Republic, most of whose writers and editors are Jewish. Um, he had quite a remarkable tenure there, often controversial, often controversial within the building and often outside. Um, he was named the editor of the year by Ad Week, which I presume means he actually generated a lot of advertising for a political affairs magazine, um, and that's a difficult thing to do. He did eventually leave the New Republic after several years as editor. He became a columnist for the New York Times, but quickly became too controversial for them, especially, I guess, for Howell Raines. And he then became a pioneering blogger in the year 2000, and that really is the stone age of blogging. Nobody really knew what it was. It was an interesting experiment for him, but particularly after 9-11, it really took off, and he became one of the leading figures in the uh, online world, the blogosphere as it became. Um, he's now a columnist for Time Magazine and for the Sunday Times of London, and still a senior editor of The New Republic. Andrew holds a Ph.D. from Harvard with a dissertation on the conservatism of Michael Oakeshott. He's uh, uh, written two books and edited one before this. He wrote Virtually Normal, an argument about homosexuality. He then uh, produced an anthology, Same-Sex Marriage, Pro and Con, and then a book called Love Undetectable, Notes on Friendship, Sex, and Survival. 
Um, I'll introduce our commenter later, but right now I want to uh, welcome to the uh, Cato podium the author of The Conservative Soul, How We Lost It, How to Get It Back, Andrew Sullivan. Thank you very much, David, and, and thank you too, David, for agreeing to engage me, which is not... <laughs> not literally. Well, <laughs> yeah, marriage rights haven't gotten that developed. Um, and my, my actual fiancé might be a little perturbed by that news, but anyway, um, uh, let me start by, by saying that I know that everyone in this room, at least I presume that everyone in this room has gone through the last six years, maybe the last ten years, with a lot of their pre-existing ideas and ideologies chastened, changed, troubled, upset, discombobulated by the pace of events. Mine certainly have. And I think what I try to do in this book is to really, because every day I'm responding willy-nilly to minutiae on an hourly, daily, minute-by-minute basis, was to actually take a deep breath and try and ask myself, what are the really deep issues here? What am I missing? What are the fundamental questions that have made conservatism in America, at least, such a fundamentally divisive and internally quarrelsome movement? Part of that is obviously a function of extraordinary success. Part of it is also a function of, I think, intellectual health, that there is still so much positive debate on the right about what it means to be conservative and what conservatism might mean in the future. And part of it is just enormous dismay among many of us as what we've seen as what many of us regard as the incoherence of the current administration and Congress and betrayal of fundamental conservative principles. Indeed, I would argue an actual four-square attack on conservatism as a governing political philosophy. What I want to do today is to highlight what I think is probably the central theme of this book and the central theme of my attempt to think about this and to open what I hope is a conversation about exactly these subjects. And the theme that I want to insist upon and talk about is the relationship between freedom and doubt. This may not seem to many people immediately (laughs) an obvious connection. Most people understand freedom as the freedom to do things, (laughs) to engage the world, to make decisions, to be the decider. Not everybody understands that freedom is rooted, and Western freedom particularly rooted in, a very fundamental understanding of the fallibility of the human mind and indeed the moral fallibility of the human soul and the need to put fundamental and unalterable restraints on human beings who live collectively in order to avoid some of the great mistakes and some of the great errors and some of the great tyrannies that certainty in human history has provided. 
Sometimes when I talk to conservatives about this, I, I start with a simple point, which is about conservatives' attachment to free markets. To ask ourselves, first of all, why have conservatives been in favor of free markets historically? And I would posit the following. That the critical argument behind free markets is not that they produce great amounts of wealth or great amounts of power, but simply that markets devolve decision-making to the people closest to the activities involved, and those people closest to the activities involved, trading and selling and buying, have the most knowledge and understanding of what they are doing. That the closer you are to what you are dealing with, the more likely you are to know what the hell you're doing. And the further away you are from those particular interactions on the ground, the more likely you are to get it wrong. And so conservatism in the 20th century had a very powerful critique, all the way from Hayek through to Oakeshott, of the insanity of a government and of a central authority dictating to large, complex, organic, dynamic societies what was the right way to order their economies or indeed the right way to order their societies. Why? Because one individual, one expert, is often wrong. Not only that, when they become certain that they are right, they can create great damage to the fabric of society. This was the essence of Burke's critique of the French Revolution. You are messing with things you do not understand. The society is too complicated and too complex for one human mind, however brilliant, to master. And secondly, that even if one human mind has mastered it all, the move from understanding it in theory to implementing it in practice is a huge leap. Michael Oakeshott had a great metaphor for this particular issue. And he called it governing by the book. When Oakeshott spoke of the book, he was speaking primarily in the 40s and 50s and 60s of the great era of liberal triumphalism. We figured it all out. We know how to make society wealthy. We will abolish poverty. We will be rid of war. We will have a great society. We will have an affluent society. And we figured it all out in Harvard. And we're just going to implement it all upon the world. Oakeshott said no at a time when it was very unpopular and difficult to say no. But he said no for very simple and powerful purpose. He said, if you're governing a society by a book, and you're actually having to govern it as you are reading and understanding and writing that book, every now and again at the beginning, you're going to have to look up from the book just to make sure that people are behaving according to plan. And very soon after you've written that book and you have your idea of what the world should be like, you will look up and realize there are people misbehaving. <laughs> they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not following the rules in the book. If you're going to govern them, you're going to have to keep looking up from the book just to keep them all in line. And eventually, you're going to keep looking up from the book so often, there will come a moment when you will have to, if you want to govern the society as it is, close the book. 
for the book, think of the Communist Manifesto. Think of any treatise that declares it knows the truth about humankind and wishes to impose it. Think the affluent society. But now take it to a whole new level and think the Quran, the Bible, the Torah, not just any old books, but the book containing the truth with a capital T. And conservatives, for reasons of political opportunism, found themselves closely and continuously and ever more tightly connected with people who believe the world should be governed from the book. And conservatives didn't see that they were getting trapped in the same trap they were forced into in the 40s and 50s and 60s from the left, except now it is coming from what we might call the far right. The critical conservative insight for Oakeshott, for Burke, for Hayek, for the great titans of conservative thought is that we must know what we do not know. That when we go from theory to practice, we engage practice with a humility and an empiricism and a reality-based judgment that is always flexible, always intuitive, always looking for what's new, for how society is changing, for how human beings are actually organizing their own lives and forging their own destinies in ways that no central planner will ever understand. And doubt, of course, is the key to this. The conservative stands in the way of the great theoretician and says, are you sure? <laughs> he stands in the way of the great ideologue and he says, do you know this for certain? I like my way of life. I like the way I'm organizing. I like my freedom. Why do you want to take it away from me? And from that insight comes the second aspect of doubt, not just doubt epistemologically or empirically, but politically. And Western liberalism, and I mean that in the broadest sense to include both conservatives and liberals today, I mean classical, Hobbesian, Lockean, liberal order, sprang from a particular historical context. Hobbes was writing at a moment in a society that was absolutely riven with religious war. He saw what pursuing the truth with a capital T did to his own society. He saw families pulled apart. He saw generations at war. He saw a king decapitated. He saw a revolution in England. He saw violence and murder. And he wanted something more secure, something saner, something that would allow people to live in peace, something that represented and reflected what he believed was the changes and advances of human knowledge in the fields of science. So from that kind of doubt, from Hobbes's doubt, came the liberal state. What we will do is not rest the politics on virtue or the truth or the good, but we will rest politics on the prevention of harm on keeping you because I do not know who you might be. <laughs> I do not know whether you're going to attack me or hurt me. I want a system of laws which makes sure you cannot. 
And to make that really stick, I want a Leviathan that will ensure that all these laws are applied absolutely with a monopoly of force so that we're all equally free from each other. Hobbes' insight was taken on by Locke and found, I think, its greatest intellectual expression in the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence. That Constitution was absolutely clear and staggering in its time and remarkable given the atmosphere in which it was written and given the history with which it was dealing. And that is that there would be no point to the United States of America. There would be no church and no religion and no book to define the meaning of this new country. There would merely be a constitution. And the constitution would be primarily directed towards stopping people doing things. It set up a rule of law whereby people couldn't affect each other's property, protected each other's lives. And because government is always a necessary evil, it set up a system of checks and balances, of separations, of powers, to make sure that if anybody anywhere got the idea that they knew the truth and wanted to enforce it, to remove people's liberties, to make them behave according to plan, there'd be plenty of opportunities to stop it in its tracks. Many people regard this as a terribly inefficient way of doing things. In the early 20th century, lots of liberals were rather frustrated with this procedure, and many of them subsequently have also been very frustrated by this procedure. Our current president is terribly frustrated with the possibility that any other branch of government would interfere with his right to do whatever he wants. But the point is, precisely, that the founders knew and understood the dangers of the activist man, the energetic ruler, they also particularly understood the terrible dangers of the activist man who is infused with the zeal of religious truth and knows that it is his divine duty to impose it upon as many people as possible with as much power as possible. And when they didn't set up the executive and legislative and judicial branches to check each other, they devolved power to the states in a great federalist experiment to ensure that if there were new ideas or innovations, because society will always be changing, it wouldn't be imposed by one person on the whole place at once. There would be places to experiment. There would be diversity. So indeed, that errors could be corrected. Again, you see a political system rooted fundamentally in doubt, in doubt about the certainty of governance. And the core of this project was not moral virtue, although certainly the founders were no foes of moral virtue. The core of this, the tripartite core of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was an astonishing claim. I'm still taken aback as an immigrant to this country that the idea of an entire country will be premised upon something called the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> What an astonishing idea. What a very modern idea. Not only that, but happiness itself is left completely undefined. The ancients would never have understood happiness except in terms of virtue. 
and the achievement of virtue and the necessity to practice virtue. But no, the founders didn't even say happiness. They said the pursuit of happiness. Not even its achievement. Not even its attainment. Just the pursuit of it. However you think it is right for you. And insofar as you do not bother anybody else or hurt anybody else, this is the entire point. This is what we are doing in this new land. We are creating a new order in which faith and virtue will not be integral to government. Maybe it takes coming to America from elsewhere to realize the astonishing radicalism of this idea. I grew up in a country which had an established church. I was forced as a Catholic because I went to public high schools to go to a Protestant school where I was taught by my government that certain things were true about the world. To come to a country in which that is not true, in which we have this piece of paper and these checks and balances and these procedures and these terribly troubling exercises in constitutional propriety that get in the way of all sorts of things is really quite liberating. I loved it. That's why I love this country and why it is so distressing to see it being attacked and undermined by its own president and by its own Congress. There is a third aspect of doubt that needs to be addressed. I wanted to write a book about politics. <laughs> and this book is fundamentally about politics. But it is impossible, I realized, to write about politics today without writing about religion. Because religion has become our politics. Because people are actually being elected on the grounds of their religious convictions because laws are being passed on the basis of religious doctrines, because even a Supreme Court justice can be nominated on the grounds of her religious faith, because the mobilizing political base of one of the parties that actually controls all three branches of government, by which I mean the two houses and the presidency, and is fast gaining control of the judiciary, is fundamentally a religiously motivated group of people. What I want to argue is that religion is not always like that. Religious faith isn't always expressed and hasn't always been expressed by the absolute certainty of fundamentalism. That it is in fact the greatest lie of our time that the only genuine religious faith is fundamentalist. And the greatest lie of our time that the only form of religious experience is liberation into complete certainty about what is true now and forever. That in fact, critical to another kind of faith, a faith that is not born again, doesn't have a moment at which it transforms the individual psyche completely but a faith that begins and ends in ways that are hard to explain, that is a process and an experience that interacts with everyday life as well as with the divine, that prays and doubts 
and praise and doubts and praise because it doubts. This is another tradition. It was the gay tradition of the mainline Protestant churches in this country for a very long time. It was the great tradition of Anglicanism in Britain. It was the tradition that animated the Second Vatican Council. It's a tradition that I think is upheld and lived, actually, by most lay Catholics in the United States, certainly those that I know and love and care for. And it rests on the notion that if you've never doubted, you've never really believed. If you've never had a distance between you and the doctrine you are embracing, then you haven't been able to embrace it. <laughs> you have merely submitted to it. You have a blind faith that has not been grasped within the folds of your own conscience. The fundamentalist looked at this and sees sin. Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, has argued very persuasively to some and very cogently to others and very terrifyingly to me that conscience is itself a delusion. That what you think of your, is your conscience is not actually your conscience. That beneath that there is a conscience given to you by God which is always in accordance with the truth of God, which is always in accordance with the Pope's view. And therefore, if your conscience is telling you, for example, that I'm not sure that every per person in a permanent vegetative state should be kept on feeding tubes forever, then that isn't your conscience speaking, that is a false conscience. It is the papal version of what, the, what Marxists used to call false consciousness. And it is your duty to liberate yourself and submit yourself to the will and dictates of the Pope. Similarly, if you have any doubt within fundamentalist Protestantism about any of the truths and arguments made in any part of the Bible, it is your fault, not the Bible's. If you find a logical contradiction, it is your sin, not its contradiction. The Bible is not a text to be engaged, understood, questioned, queried, puzzled about. It is a text to be accepted in full without error. And indeed, entertaining error is itself sin. Doubt is sin. And so you can see how fundamentalism actually is not merely an uncomfortable partner with conservatism. It is its nemesis. It is its enemy. It is sucking the oxygen out of a liberal democracy. It is making political argument impossible because it means entirely religious doctrine. And there can be no quarrel with religious truth. So our religious development into an increasingly fundamentalist world, we see it most extremely and terrifyingly in what has happened in Islam, where the most fundamentalist forces within it have taken over, and the more moderate forces are in complete retreat. And you see it also in Christianity, to a lesser extent, and certainly not to be understood or associated with the violence associated with Islamism, but certainly intellectually. And doctrinally, Christianism, the attempt to turn Christianity into an absolute certain truth that must be imposed politically at all times, 
is a deep danger, the deepest danger, to liberal democratic life. I want to end by simply quoting someone I came across in reading and researching for this book, which is a man I'd never read before, which is a German playwright, 18th century Gotthold Lessing. I made it the epigram for the book because, for me at least, it, it gets to the core of the process of the human soul in understanding the world that leads to our understanding of politics. And it is the following quote. The true value of a man is not determined by his possession, supposed or real, of truth, but rather by his sincere exertion to get to the truth. It is not possession of the truth, but rather the pursuit of truth by which he extends his powers and in which his ever-growing perfectibility is to be found. Possession makes one passive, indolent, and proud. If God were to hold all truth concealed in his right hand and in his left hand only the steady and diligent drive for truth, albeit with the proviso that I will always and forever err in the process, and to offer me the choice, I would with all humility take the left hand and say, Father, I will take this. The pure truth is for you alone. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. I should have mentioned in uh, the introduction that Andrew was once president of the Oxford Union, a fact that I'm always reminded of when I hear him give a speech with virtually no notes. Um, let me take just a moment to make unnecessary announcements so that those of you who don't have seats can, if you like, come down and take seats uh, near the front or uh, near the aisles. Uh, we do have a couple of seats in the front row and a couple of others down here. Um, I might just note for the people who are here that we have a couple of other upcoming events that I hope you'll pick up an invitation for. Tomorrow we're having a discussion of uh, one of the specific depredations of the Constitution by the Bush administration, the McCain-Feingold Act, and we'll be discussing a new book called The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform at noon tomorrow in this room. And then next week, um, Michael Shermer will be here to discuss his book, Why Darwin Matters, uh, with a sharp critique from someone uh, from the Discovery Institute. Institute, Jonathan Wells, who has a book with a different view. And now it's my pleasure to introduce a very distinguished commenter on this book. Uh, you all know David Brooks because he writes a column on uh, the New York Times editorial page every Thursday and Sunday um, and is one of the most read columnists in the country. Uh, before he was there, he worked for nine years at the Wall Street Journal as a reporter and an editor. He then was one of the founding editors of the Weekly Standard, joined there, I believe it was 1995. Um, I used to think of him as the decent one at the Weekly Standard. Um, <laughs> But he was also the author of articles on national greatness, which I took some exception to. Um, now David Brooks is the official conservative of the liberal establishment. Um, if, you, if you turn on Lehrer or Diane Rehm or All Things Considered and they deign to have a conservative voice, it will be David Brooks. And that is an annoyance to some limited government conservatives. Um, 
some of whom complained today that we were having a discussion of conservatism with Andrew Sullivan and David Brooks, and what the heck was that going to be? Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Uh, David Brooks is perhaps best known, uh, at least to people who don't read the New York Times, as a brilliant social reporter or journalistic sociologist. Uh, He wrote two books, Bobo's in Paradise, The New Upper Class and How They Got There, and On Paradise Drive, How We Live Now and Always Have in the Future Tense, both of which are just marvelous pieces of reporting about the way people actually live in the 21st century. Um, Please welcome, for a comment on the conservative soul, David Brooks. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be at a conservative New York Times writer at the Cato Institute. Uh, We have one pass at the Times of who can come over to Cato, so there's only one of us here at any one time, and Tierney lent me his, so I'm... Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm also glad to see the room is so crowded that we're violating the fire regulations, which at Cato is an act of civil disobedience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We agree with. Uh, It's also a great pleasure to be here with Andrew. Uh, I don't know what your complaints were. I think it's completely inappropriate that a a gay Catholic and a New York Jew debate evangelical Protestantism. (laughs) I actually went to the University of Chicago where the school motto was, they said it was a Baptist school where atheist professors taught Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so I'm, I'm used to this. Uh, uh, as for Andrew, uh, first, uh, we were mentioning on the way here, Pierre, I thought Andrew was in the minority being a gay conservative, but the more I read the news, it seems I'm the only straight conservative. Uh, <laughs> left. Uh, I I look at Andrew's blog more than any other blog in the country. Uh, uh, And that's in part because I consider Andrew something of an intellectual traveling companion. Uh, I think we both supported the war. I still do much more than Andrew does, and I still support the Bush administration much more than Andrew does. But nonetheless, as Andrew said in the beginning of his remarks, the uh, journey some of us have taken over the past three years has been a traumatic one and a, and, a, and a difficult one. And Andrew has always led this journey with a sense of ruthless honesty and self-critical examination. And so while I don't always agree, and I'm not a blogger, so I don't have to go quite as far over the top as Andrew does on a daily basis, uh, nonetheless, I think Andrew has, has led an honest, and to belabor the cliche, an Orwellian, in the true sense of that word, examination of the facts and the truth. And he has what Orwell had, which is the ability to face unpleasant facts, which is a rare commodity. And I share a lot of Andrew's essential diagnoses of where we are in the country. I share his sense that conservatism is in crisis, has lost its sense of principle, has lost its agenda. I share his further sense that the key value that conservatives have abandoned is the truth of epistemological modesty the awareness of, of what we don't know. Uh, and this was an awareness, as Andrew said, that Hayek shared with, with Oakshan and with Burke and was, in many regards, the core of conservatism, that the world is a complex, organic place and we ought to be careful in mucking, monkeying it up. And I myself wrote a column three years ago at the very start of the war where I described Oakshot and I asked, what would he think of the Iraq war? And I concluded he probably wouldn't be too wild about it. But I argued against him 
Oakshot on the grounds that I didn't think the status quo in Iraq and the Middle East was worth preserving. And in certain circumstances, you had to undertake radical transformations. And I still think that's a defensible point, though I think Oakshot's warnings were worth heeding a lot more than have been heeded. And Andrew has now brought them uh, to our attention. Nonetheless, I, here's where the disagreements begin. And I've only got 12 minutes left, but I, will, I have several. The first is his diagnosis of the problem. His diagnosis is the, the way conservatism went off base was, was fundamentalism, Christianism, as he calls it. I see some people who I think I could call Christianists in his terms, and I would include Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the authors of the Left Behind series perhaps in that category. But as I look at evangelical Christians, the incredible diversity of 30 or 40 million Americans, I don't see Christianism. I don't see a lack of doubt. I certainly don't meet anybody or many people who think that doubt equals sin. I, for example, just saw the exhaustive research that Baylor University researchers did into the nature of evangelical Christians. They found, A, only 1% of them called themselves fundamentalists. 2% called themselves evangelicals. There's an incredible diversity of views within this movement. And the, the best thing the, the uh, Baylor researchers did was to describe how these evangelicals view God. They have incredibly diverse and contradictory views of God. And this is mainstream America. George Bush comes from a megachurch, a Methodist church in, in uh, Midland, Texas. This is not fundamentalist church. This is a church where you people watch Sex in the City. They watch Desperate Housewives. They watch Oprah. These people are not detached from mainstream America. They're fully absorbed into mainstream America. These evangelical Christians are not out there in some parallel universe along with these Muslim fundamentalists. And I think Andrew's completely wrong to draw a continuum, and it's a continuum, but it's a completely wrong parallel between the faith that Christians have in this country and the faith the Muslim fundamentalists have. I think it, it obscures much more than it divides. If, if you look and talk to historians like Mark Knoll, he'll tell you how incredibly diverse evangelicals are uh, and how the, the, the cliché that Andrew describes just doesn't pertain. And to me, the quotations in the books which often come from people like Falwell and Robertson, just don't adequately describe fundamentalism or evangelical Christianity in this country. In my experience, and I spend a lot of time with candidates on the road and with uh, different people, uh, and, and I know if I'm going to go to dinner with evangelicals, I've got to come with an empty briefcase because they're going to give me histories, they're going to give me biographies, there'll be a few C.S. Lewis tapes they want me to listen to. I will come home festooned with books. Because this is a group of people that never shut up. They want to talk and talk and talk. And so the idea that they're untroubled by doubt is not the reality I see. And just to take one example, again, to bring it down to the concrete, if you look at the people who were most absent of doubt in the Bush administration and who I think have harmed the United States and the Bush administration conservatism more than anybody else, I would say that person is Donald Rumsfeld, not an evangelical Christian not the person uh, subsumed by faith who think he, God is talking through him. If you want to ask me who is the person who I think has been most honest or among the people who have been honest about what's going on in the, the world, who have been most constructive to America, I would say it's Michael Gerson, the president's former speechwriter, who Andrew lists as a fundamentalist in the book. But if you want someone who is, can face up to the evidence, can face unpleasant truths, I would say it's Michael Gerson who went to Wheaton College and who is a serious religious person. 
so I just don't think the category pertains to the reality. If you want me to describe what has led to this absence of doubt, this uh, aggressive I know best mentality, in this country it has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with partisanship. It's tribalism. People who think their team is always right and the other team is always wrong. It's those people who uh, who lacked out, and those people who lead to these hyper-aggressive errors. Some of those people are Christian activists in Washington, D.C., but some partisans are not Christian activists in Washington, D.C. When I look around the world, to me, often it's the Christian politicians who are the most useful because they understand something. They understand that human beings are not profit-maximizing creatures who respond to incentives. They understand the dark aspects of human nature because the concept of original sin is core to their being, another key conservative concept. And so when they look at the Middle East, the idea that somebody would kill, commit suicide to kill people is not a surprising thing because the Bible has prepared themselves for depravity. I was in Africa recently, and I went to a hospital with Michael Gerson, as a matter of fact, uh, where 848 women were being treated for, for AIDS. They were HIV positive. They were getting the antiretrovirals. They were trying to bring their male partners in to get tested for HIV so they could survive as well. Out of the 848 women, eight men came in. This is not self-interested, rational, profit-maximizing behavior. And to me, the Christians and people with religious, strong religious faiths have understood the reality of human nature, which is the core lesson in the post-9-11 world. Uh, and so to me, when I look at... Uh, the world of the evangelical Christians and the role they're playing or should play in American politics, I'm where Lincoln was. I don't share a lot of the beliefs. I certainly don't share some of the faiths and some of the tenets. But I know that evangelical Christians, people motivated by a sense of just and righteousness of the world, have provided many of the most important civil rights movements in the country, whether it's abolitionism, civil rights, and I recommend a book on the civil rights movement called The Stone of Hope which argues the civil rights movement was not a political movement with a religious taint. It was a religious movement with a political taint. And Lincoln said, I'm not with these people. I'm not among these people, but I am with these people because they understand uh, core truths about American history. And then turning to Andrew's second uh, or his, uh, his prognosis, his prescription, the conservatism of doubt. Like I said, I'm with Andrew in admiring Michael Oakeshott. And I'm with Andrew in admiring Edmund Burke, and the lesson will have past three years, it should make us all a lot more Burkean. There's no question about that. Yet Michael Oakeshott, while he should always be the voice in the back of your head, urging caution, should never be at the front of your mind telling you where to go. That's because we live in a democracy. And to get elected in a democracy, you have to have certain plans and visions. You have to have a certain confidence to assert yourself. That's the nature of politics in a democracy. And if you are practicing the politics of doubt, you're not going to get elected, and you're not going to be able to wield authority when you get elected, because doubt doesn't win elections, and doubt doesn't mobilize legislature, or doesn't mobilize anything. And so the reality is we live in an imperfect, human, imperfect world where we have to assert ourselves. We have to be aware of, we have to possess doubts, but we also have to project uh, with a trumpet. The second problem I have with Oakeshott uh, is that in some ways his thought, while so admirable, and I'm, I'm, as, I'm a much bigger Anglophile probably than anybody in this room. I grew up in a family where the motto was, think Yiddish, act British. Uh, <laughs> my two turtles as a kid were Disraeli and Gladstone. 
That's a sick bastard. Uh, nonetheless, there are some aspects of Oakshot's thought where, which are aloof from American and American culture. And the first one is his distrust for achievement. America is a go-getter country, an entrepreneurial country. Oakshot was a guy who lived in a rural cottage which Andrew visited and played the ponies. And he distrusted the achievement go-getter ethos of the United States. And second, and much more important, the United States is a creedal country. We believe in a creed which is expressed in our Declaration of Independence. It is an abstraction. It is an assertion of a universal truth. There's no doubt in that creed. And that the best moments of American history have been led by people calling us to live, on that, live up to that abstract universal creed. And Oakeshott would have been distrustful of that creed. He believed in a politics, and Andrew quotes in the book, one of the great paragraphs from Oakeshott, a politics where you're sailing along, you're being buffeted by storms, and all you're trying to do is keep the ship of state balanced. Well, that's not America's purpose in the world, just to, to keep stability balanced. It may be the purpose of some cynical realpolitik, but America has a creed, uh, a creed that believes that people are, in, are endowed with uh, inalienable rights, and if it abandoned that creed, it would no longer be the country uh, we know. So I think uh, Andrew's right about conservatism. He's right in diagnosing the need for doubt, the need for skepticism, to, the need to rediscover our Oakshadian and Burkean truth. But religion is not the primary problem to me. The problems are the same old problems that Donald Rumsfeld displays, the problems of character and judgment, wisdom, and tribalism and thinking your side knows better than the other side and knows nothing. And those are the same old problems which have bedeviled politics all along. And to me, the best Andrew, and this is why I cherish his blog and read it every day, is that when Andrew writes on his blog, whether it's about torture, whether it's about gay marriage, which I completely agree with him about, doubt is not the first adjective I would use to describe his writing. <laughs> He's passionate. He has a sense of the rightness of his causes. Uh, and, he is, and, and that is the Andrew that is really making a difference uh, in the world. So thanks. Thank you very much, David. Um, let's open this up to questions. Uh, we do have books outside, and Andrew will be glad to sign them. Do uh, uh, you want to make a response? Okay. Uh, we'll be glad to sign books afterward. I'm going to give Andrew a chance to respond briefly, and then we will open it up to questions, wait for to be called on and to have a mic come to you. Andrew? I hope you don't mind if I respond, David. I, first of all, I want to thank you immensely for, for, for reading so carefully and for being so generous, too generous, I think, um, in many respects, um, and for also homing in on the central weaknesses <laughs> of what I'm trying to say um, very acutely, and I and I think in ways that um, exactly what I was hoping to generate in a conversation. Let me let me address two of the points that you make and say why I think I don't entirely agree with you. Although I agree with you more than I think. <laughs> Uh, than you might imagine. The That's first too is, much doubt. You've got to be more. <laughs> uh, the first is about the diversity of evangelicalism, which I think you're absolutely right, that actual uh, believing evangelical Protestants are not, in fact, sociologically, anthropologically, when you talk to them or when you, when you engage the actual culture, a monolithic block at all. 
<laughs> and nor do they exist in some sort of bubble somewhere out of all connection with everybody else. This is quite a, the, the paradox. And also in their faith lives, there is, of course, an enormous span from what one might call extreme inerrantists to um, evangelicals who are even on the left. or even uh, All of that is absolutely true. And I don't wish to deny it. And inevitably, because I'm describing a political strain here, what I'm talking about really is how, when evangelicalism and religion is marshaled by political parties deliberately and targeted as a means of political support, then inevitably the political use of evangelicalism will inevitably home in on its certainties and its inviolable truths and will press those truths far beyond what a person or a conservative doubt would ever do. Now, we have clear examples of that. We have the astonishing spectacle of the Terry Schiavo case, which I think revealed something about where power really lies. We have a president who would not be roused from vacation when a hurricane was hitting New Orleans, but could be gotten up at the second to go and intervene in the life and death struggle of a dying person in a terribly tragic, intimate relationship. There is nothing conservative about that, and yet this president did that. We also see it, and I'm not going to apologize for this, in believing that gay people are so anathema <laughs> and our relationship so bad that not only must we ban our ability to marry each other, but we must actually amend the federal constitution to make sure that no one ever, anywhere, in any state can ever do that. That kind of certainty, that was the first position these people took on a very complicated issue of social change, and it was not diverse. <laughs> And all branches of government did it. Similarly, on issues like contraception or even on abortion, instead of making an argument that we all need to reduce the number of abortions to place your entire standard on the basis of a federal constitutional amendment criminalizing all of it in all its forms and insisting that a seconds-old zygote is as fully a human being as anybody in this room as a matter of truth. And having the president assert that as something non-negotiable is not pluralist, diverse, or tolerant. It is not. That it's political manifestations of this evangelicalism and the cynicism with which it has been exploited and used is, I agree, a betrayal of the diversity of actual evangelical faith. But when that call is heard and when that uh, rhetoric is used it uses that faith into a political instrument. I mean, you know, you've read Tom DeLay's quote. This, Tom DeLay is not an insignificant figure in the Republican Party in the last um, several years. Um, and I will read you this quote because to me, it's early, from earlier this year. Tom DeLay, House Majority Leader, the architect of the legislative agenda for the Republicans the last 10 years. Sides are being chosen. The future of man hangs in the balance. The enemies of virtue may be on the march, but they have not won, and if we put our trust in Christ, they never will. It is for us, then, to do as our heroes have always done and put our faith in the perfect, perfect, redeeming love of Jesus Christ. Now, look, he said that as House Majority Leader. He said that to a political gathering. That is not a diverse or pluralistic use of religion. That is turning religion into a political weapon and using it to divide the country and win. And they, they, they did that on all these issues. And I think it is naive not to acknowledge that that is the issue. I also agree with you. Um, <laughs> Remember, there was something he agreed with earlier. The, the errors of the past. Like agreement. The errors, well, I think I agree with you. The errors of the past uh, 
10 years or 12 years, if you go back to 94, uh, are, are multi-determined. <laughs> this is not, I do not regard this as the, the exclusive explanation of what's occurred. The arrogance and folly of a man like Rumsfeld, who, by the way, is an ideologue, he had an idea of what the army military should be and refused to adjust it to reality. So he would fall into an old category of a non-conservative that would not be religious. But who has been basically calling the shots? President Bush. His view, it seems to me, is clearly that. He knows that he's on the side of right. <laughs> Any concession to failure means that he's on the side of wrong, that the world is black and white, and therefore the ability to adjust to actual changing circumstances is very, very difficult for him. And that, I think, springs from a fundamentalist psyche, which I think is within this president's mind. I think it changed his life. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's a psyche that is very dangerous in politics and has led to enormous damage, both to the Constitution and to the world and the dangers that we're facing. Very lastly, just to respond to this, yeah, we are, America is a creedal nation, but the creed is that there is no single creed to govern all Americans. The creed is a minimalist creed of equality. And if you ask where it comes from, it comes from this, we were talking about this the other day, this remarkable claim, we, we, we hold these truths to be self-evident, <laughs> which is both an assertion of certainty, but also an assertion that lacks any <laughs> external foundation. <laughs> it is a non-foundationalist foundation. And I think the non-foundationalist foundation in the Constitution was deliberate because they had seen societies based upon secure foundations and they decided, no, we will try something less. Now, the genius is that Americans, of course, and the paradox, as you point out, is that America is sociologically and anthropologically full of creed and passion. But it is constitutionally designed to prevent that from ever really affecting politics. And so the Constitution acts as this fantastic break upon the anthropological nature of Americans. That balance is very important. Just as I point out, yes, I am passionate about things like torture, and I am passionate about things like uh, gay equality. I am passionate about, believe it or not, about balancing a budget. If that, uh, uh, but at the same time, if someone comes along and says, to, I was passionate about the war in Iraq, very passionate, cringe-makingly passionate in <laughs> retrospect, but passion and doubt are also not necessarily always enemies. You can sally forth and then say, hold on a minute. <laughs> Have I got all this right? Let me pursue all the possibilities I got it wrong. Um, and so I don't think that dichotomy is quite as stark as David argued. Um, so those would be my responses. Um, a, a partial agreement about the sociology of America but disagreement about the way that has been manipulated and used for political ends, which I think has been very destructive to the conservative idea and the conservative principle. Thank you. Sorry. All right. Let's take some questions. I apologize in advance for not getting to all the questions because I expect there will be a lot. Let's start right here. I'll bring a microphone to you. <coughs> Thank you. I'd just like to ask a, a general question. It's been my... Uh, perception looking over history that whenever reason and anyone tries to reconcile reason and faith, faith always wipes the floor with reason. Care to comment? That's certainly not how the founding fathers approached faith. Um, it's funny to hear today that American Christians ridiculing what they call cafeteria Christianity. <laughs> 
you've got to take it all. It's all true, inerrant. Any, every sentence in the Bible is true now and forever. And then you read Jefferson, and you realize, boy, this is a guy who went through the Gospels with a pair of scissors and cut out the passages from Jesus that he actually believed were obviously from Jesus and ignored what he regarded with not, without the scholarship we have today is obviously interpolated by people who didn't get what Jesus was talking about. And what's remarkable about Jefferson's Bible, which used to be given to every member of Congress, uh, believe it or not, they stopped doing that a while back for obvious reasons, because um, Jefferson would be regarded as a secular liberal relativist by today's Christ- Christianists, um, was he sensed that, that, um, that you can reason. And what the Pope was saying in his recent, I think, very interesting and courageous talk is that Logos in the Christian world in the beginning was the word, the beginning of St. John's Gospel. And Jesus, as the incarnation, is understood to be the incarnation of the word. And logos, which is the translation, the Greek translation, means both word, but it also means reason. It's the origin of the word logic. It's, it, it's about a reasonable God that we can figure out to some extent. You read someone like Pascal, you read someone like Montaigne, you read people who grappled with faith intellectually, or you read even someone like Newman, and uh, you see people who believe that Christianity absolutely can be reasoned through in a way that other faiths maybe are not so amenable. Um, I'm sure David would point out that the scholars of the Torah have done nothing but reason about their faith for, for millennia. <laughs> um, sometimes the point of up. exhaustion. <laughs> um, so, but yes, at some point, yes. Reason does give way. I would argue that reason should give way to an acceptance of mystery. And mystery and is, 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 is the core of all religious faith. Because by definition, if, we believe, if God exists, then God is beyond our human categories. And therefore, there will always be something about God that we do not understand. So those who believe that they have known God and understood him, not only that or her or it, but then go to the, to the length of actually imposing what they believe as law on everybody else, only prove they do not know God at all. They only prove they do not know faith at all. That would be my response. Dave? I, I'd just quickly say that, like nature and nurture, uh, reason and faith are dichotomies that, again, distort more than they reveal, since the two so often uh, feed into one another. And that's, as Andrew suggests, certainly true of Judaism, where... Uh, the reasoning part is is way too strong. Um, the <laughs> architectural part is way too weak. Uh, and this was this was the point the Pope was trying to make, and the Pope was trying to say, do do you assume that God falls into human categories of reason? And if I understand Andrew's reading of Montaigne, who is also in the book, I'm not sure you think Montaigne thought that God falls into human categories of reason. Uh, before you get to that. Uh, and so I do think I think the Pope is actually very uh, typical of of religious people of all faiths in this country trying to use reason to arrive and secure faith. But the one di- di- distinction that Andrew draws, which I do think is an important distinction and spins out in many ways, is what is at the core of one's conception of truth? Is it the individual conscience, which Andrew is the uh, eloquently champions, or in Rick Warren's phrase, the first words of Purpose Driven Life are, it's not about you. And there's clearly two different conceptions of the individual conscience here. 
And that I, th- I do think that is a distinction between what Andrew is championing and what, say, Rick Warren is championing, which does have political effects. Huge political effects. If the graining ideology is individual conscience does not matter, <laughs> your, sub- your subordination to an external truth imposed by government power is the key, then we do not have a mild disagreement here. We but have again, a you're, pushing, you're pushing Rick Warren off into Ayatollah land. Uh, he wouldn't say individual conscience doesn't matter, and people like John Stott certainly wouldn't say that. Um, but their political manifestation ends up in that place. It ends up, for example, saying that someone, a woman who conscientiously thinks that a, that a very early abortion is her right to choose, they argue, no, and we will throw you in jail if you do. For people like me who think in my conscience my relationship is, is, is as worth anything else, they will say no. And in Virginia, they're making it illegal right now under the Republican Party for even to have private contracts allowing that. For Terry Schiavo's husband, it wasn't a question. It was no. <laughs> uh, David, maybe you have to feel the brunt of these people to see exactly what they mean and the fact that there will be no argument and no tolerance of dissent um, uh, is clear. There are certain Republican candidates who are ruled out of bounds immediately because of their disagreement on some religious issues. Uh, like abortion, or indeed uh, contraception in some respects, and gay marriage, or even just simply gay equality, or even the existence of homosexual persons. Maybe you have to be a woman (laughs) or a gay person to see first up the blunt tip of their spear, because we got speared first, but we're not the only ones. Well, for playing the victim game, actually, we got speared first. not in, not in the last 10 years, David. <laughs> no. Not under these people. In fact, they use that issue to advance their own goals. Well, just 30 seconds. Uh, again, it depends. What Tom DeLay, Tom DeLay is a political cynic trying to use certain sorts of language to rally voters. I would not say the, the priorities of Tom DeLay were a Christianist priorities. He, he wanted to spend a lot of money to get his friends reelected, uh, regardless of what his rhetoric uh, was And as for, say, the subject of gay marriage, as you know, I'm not gay, but I'm completely with you on gay marriage. But it seems to me that a conservatism of doubt, a conservatism that, it, that, it, that uh, prizes traditional behavior, as Oakeshott did, would worry that gay marriage is a rewriting of a fundamental understanding of human society going back millennia. And Oakeshott would be extremely dubious about gay marriage. I think he would, too. And, and hence... My position, which is that one state is worth trying it out in, <laughs> um, and that and society is changing, that we should do this carefully and with reason and and look at the evidence. Th- that's my position. The position of the Republican Party is never anywhere at any time in the Constitution of the United States. That's our difference. Now, that's a difference between uh, a ideological Christianism and a pragmatic conservatism. It, it is no, nowhere better in some ways manifested than in the response to that issue. Because they cannot adopt an empirical attitude towards this because it would violate certain faith dicta. And if the president were to violate that faith dicta, for example, the president has never used the term homosexual person in a public speech. Because if he were to do such a thing, it would violate his religious base and lose him their support. So therefore, he has to tiptoe around it. Um, that's not politics. That's religion. Okay, another question. Um, 
one right here, and then give the mic to the person in the back corner, and, and let's be ready for the next one. Um, I understand that position, and I, I dispute it. I think that the Constitution of the United States is inconceivable <laughs> in, its, in its intellectual origins and, indeed, in its expression from the conservatism, conservatism of doubt that was expressed by people like Hobbes and Locke um, that is fundamentally distrustful of power and fundamentally distrustful of religion and government. The First Amendment <laughs> is first for a reason. Uh, I also think the mechanisms set up in that Constitution are specifically designed to arrest <laughs> the certainties and creeds with which you, of which you speak. In other words, the founders were well aware, well aware, that in fact Americans are creedal. <laughs> in fact, they have a variety of very extreme religious beliefs and therefore constructed a conservative Constitution to restrain it indefinitely. This is not a dodge. <laughs> I think Oakshot's, one of Oakshot's, uh, and Oakshot loved America, I might add, <laughs> and, and visited here. Uh, and uh, Burke, I might add, was a big supporter <laughs> of American independence for Burkean reasons um, and approved of the American Revolution because it was not the creedal revolution of the French. Um, and I think although you can point to, obviously, wrote references to nature's God, but when you examine the actual religious faith of the founders and when you, when, you, when you look at the text of the Constitution you see what it's really doing, you see that those are rote mentions. What's astonishing is how little of God there is in this document. Uh, and I think it was there because Americans, in fact, are anthropologically <laughs> exactly the way you described. But politically, this country was built politically to restrain that, not to endorse it. And the great mistake is when you bring the politics in line with the culture. 
because then you, you lose the very essence of what is America. This is not an English uh, conservatism. This is a conservatism that springs from the very core of the, the Constitution and its checks and balances. In that would be my response. Uh, yes. Um, Mr. Sullivan, why are you not a libertarian? Um, I say I read the essay in the New Republic that I guess your book is based on, and it seemed pretty libertarian to me. And I would just like to know why you're not one. I think for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I actually do believe um, that government has a role in certain areas which I think libertarians would dispute. Um, for example, I believe in a strong government role behind public education. Um, because I think that the tools for citizenship are essential and that, you know, that government has a duty to the people born within its bounds to, uh, to, to do such a thing. I also believe that government should be very effective and powerful in its foreign policy and use force probably much more often than libertarians would agree with. Um, I also have some epistemological problems with some libertarians about the origins of liberty but I would say this, libertarianism has an, an ism at the end of it that I, that I find uh, slightly troubling and a, and a doctrinal insistence that everybody agree to certain essential truths that I find alien to my own temperament and sensibility. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure I could be described as a very libertarian kind of conservative. <laughs> and I'm not shying away from that at all, never have. But... I don't want to be forced to subscribe to this and other doctrine that I don't necessarily feel that comfortable with. And, and I'd let, rather let my arguments speak for themselves rather than attach any particular label to them. I think it also concedes too much to conservatives, as they currently are, to say that libertarianism is somehow a different field than conservatism. No, I think from Burke on, the Whiggishness within Toryism has been a very important element in Anglo-American conservatism, and it should not be expelled and turned into a different form. It, it is a part of the balance, and and libertarians uh, need to be li libertarian impulse needs to be more thoroughly integrated into conservatism as a whole. David Kirby and I have a paper coming out next week titled "The Libertarian Vote," in which we will argue that a, a significant percentage of the American public can be identified as libertarian rather than liberal or conservative. And by those standards, you're a libertarian. <laughs> but it's a, but it's a I'm happy to be cool. I don't. I certainly don't recoil from that label. I'm just saying it's not how I choose to present myself. Okay, right there on the edge. Um. Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Brooks, um, as a practicing Roman Catholic, uh, I love the Pope, even though he's German and I'm Italian. <laughs> um, I would, I'm really astounded that both of you are for same-sex marriage. Um, I find that very appalling. I'm sorry. Thank you. Well, if you gave me an argument, I might be able to respond. So apart from you not you liking the Pope, I, I can't really respond to well, someone's emotional. I, if you've really studied the Bible, um, it does not say that same-sex marriage is there. At least I've never found it. It sure doesn't. It does not. No, and it says I should be executed. Well, no, I don't go for that. What? Uh, be because... Well, why not? Well, you're a very charming gentleman. <laughs> Well, both of you are. 
but that I'll makes just... me particularly dangerous, you see. <laughs> that requires that I be executed more quickly than anybody else. I don't understand people who, who quote the Bible and then immediately drop it as soon as it is raised back. Oh, I don't want to drop it. I mean, there's a man shortage as it is. <laughs> but I, I just cannot... I just cannot digest the same-sex marriage, and I don't know why you're so... You're for it, both of you. It's, I'm really surprised. Maybe I'm too old. Well, let me well, say maybe, that maybe. Andrew has written two books on same-sex marriage that we're not discussing today, so I urge people to read those books, and let's have questions on the conservative soul today. Yes, right there, in the white shirt. Wait for the microphone. What about the big wealth transfer that's being presided over by our so-called conservatives? Whether it's global warming, or whether it's deficits in government, or whether it's the bankruptcy of Social Security and Medicare, or the current accounts deficit, uh, we are basically robbing the future generation in order to line our pockets with dough right now. Where's the morality? Where's the doubt? Thank you. It is a critical part of my book, that point. Um, the fiscal betrayal of this administration is quite stunning. I mean, uh, we, I was here earlier this year with Bruce Bartlett, whose book focuses primarily on that, and I've been going on about it for the last five years, too. No, it's, 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 uh, it, it's remarkable. I, I can't even explain it, that we have had... I mean, the number I always give people is that when Bush took office, the unfunded future liabilities of the United States government what we had promised to pay out to the future, which we hadn't any mechanism for paying for, with $20 trillion. In four years, he'd increased it to $43 trillion. The astonishing recklessness and immorality of, of shucking off your responsibilities to the next generation, his re- recklessness in shucking off this war to the next president, his inability to take responsibility for anything, while saying he's for the responsibility society. I mean, the staggering hypocrisy of this man is, 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 is amazing to me. And the fact that conservatives have gone along with this, found excuses for it, start telling me, oh, well, he appointed Judge Roberts while he's bankrupted this country. And it's not like the Congress was another party. And not, not like his own party didn't resist that Medicare bill until they had twisted every constitutional mechanism to get it passed through. These people, are, these people are outrageous crooks in terms of what they have done to the next generation. And I don't know why conservatives haven't been more uh, uh, adamant and furious about that betrayal. People talk about his tax cuts. He has not really given us any tax cuts. He has given us huge tax increases. Because when you spend this amount <laughs> and this recklessly, domestically and abroad, and you do not fund the revenue, you either have to inflate it away, borrow it away, or tax it away. And at this point, the sums are so astronomical, and the irresponsibility so great, and the responsibility entirely of the Republicans, that there's going to be huge tax increases. And it will be very, very important when the Democrats come in or somebody with some grown-up gets in, (laughs) some adult, that we make absolutely sure these are Bush's tax cuts, this is George W. Bush's legacy, that his major legacy will be a massive increase in taxation and it will be his responsibility, no one else's. That's not true. It's not only his fault. Uh, (laughs) uh, He signed every single one of those spending bills. 
Well, let me let me let me. I think you know you've gotten to what is a the core problem with conservatism these days, which has nothing to do with whether or with religion or fundamentalism. It has to do with the complete absence of a governing philosophy. Conservatives had a governing philosophy uh, in the 1980s, and it, it achieved many great things. It ran out of gas to some extent. It was replaced by a governing philosophy, which really powered the Gingrich Revolution, which was called the Leave Us Alone Coalition, which was the idea that we should reduce the size of government by 25 percent. And that was the one idea, reducing the size of government, that united all forms of conservatism, whether they were social conservatives, economic conservatives, libertarianism. And, and so that governing philosophy was tried out in the winter of 1995 with the government shutdown. And that's when my friends and I, including some who are in this room, uh, started the Weekly Standard. And the problem with that governing philosophy is, A, it was unpopular and politically ruinous, and B, it just didn't fit the country, which is a amelioristic country, which wants governments to solve their problems. And so within three years after the collapse of the government shutdown, you had the, the Republican Party pre-Bush appropriating more money to the Department of Education than Bill Clinton even thought to ask for because they had no governing philosophy. Bush came in with an attempt at a renewed governing philosophy after the collapse of the anti-government philosophy of the Gingrich years. And that attempt at a philosophy was, had the name compassionate conservatism. And it was the idea of using government for limited but energetic means to help people who were poor, addicted to drugs, et cetera, et cetera, or in terms of education. The problem is that governing philosophy was never fleshed out. And so it really was a tissue which was burned after 9-11. And what you had was spending without any sense of priorities, without any sense of philosophy. You just had a splurge. You had Tom DeLay acting as party hacks always act, using money to buy votes. And that was the betrayal. It was not that they had a bad governing philosophy. They had no governing philosophy, so they became raw partisans. And so I want to challenge directly what I think is an absolute fallacy, which is that somehow Newt Gingrich's idiotic uh, form of politics discredits the entire notion of limited government forever. It's a nonsense it, argument. No, no, it's an I absolute nonsense that. argument. I mean, if you, if, 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 if what they represent, what Gingrich represented at that point, was first of all inability to articulate this message, and secondly, the most bizarre and, and reckless uh, acts to try and uh, represent it. And then you take that and say the entire philosophy is done and we want big government conservatism? No. You take from that that Gingrich was a terrible politician, that what they, the, the, the brinksmanship they engaged in was stupid, but if you persuade, as Reagan and Thatcher did, and true conservatives did, ordinary people, about the restraints of government, you will win a majority, you will make your case. It was a deliberate decision to change government philosophy to big government conservatism based on evangelicalism. There is a governing philosophy. It is called, this is why this, this book's about, they replaced it with faith. That gave them the politics of meaning. And, and, and not only that, but the, the minute you start to do that, it gains momentum and it begins to become, you see, Part of the analysis of this book is that the end of the last, between 1989 to 2001 was this golden age in a way in which all ideologies had been dismantled. The left's ideology after the fall of the Soviet Union was just pathetic. Great liberalism was in tatters. And small government conservatism, pragmatic conservatism, was the consensus, the Clinton-Gingrich consensus. Um, but that the politics of meaning was absent. And what filled it was religion. And they filled it with religion deliberately, with premeditation, complete cynicism, and in some parts, complete faith, which is in some ways the most scary part. And in Bush, they found the perfect example of someone who both represented that faith and has never had to balance a checkbook in his entire life 
and who defined Margaret Thatcher's term of a socialist, was, whose only real skill was spending other people's money. Except he's not very skillful at that either. So I reject this entire narrative, this entire historical narrative, that somehow conservatism was proven faulty. It was not. There were 4,000, as, as you know better than I, there were 4,000 earmarks in the budget in 94 when the Republicans took over. Uh, what are there now, 27,000 earmarks? Was this faith that created this earmarks? It was it had nothing to do with faith. It was faith it that had... kept them in power that allowed them to abuse it. That's my point. Faith is an important part of the you coalition. Think when Karl Rove tried to win Ohio last time, which was what got them back into office, he was using uh, government money? No, he was using gay baiting. He was what? using the religious right. He was getting into the churches. He was getting those people to the polls. That is what they're about, David. They are partly about faith. Evangelical Christians are an important part of the Republican Party. If they did not exist, if the Republican Party didn't speak for them, it would be a party with 5 or 10% of the American people. Or maybe 20%. You can talk to them in different ways. And, I agree. I completely and, agree and with you about that. Previous conservatives did talk to them in different ways and, and, issue, and talked about principles, of political principles of limited government with which they often agreed. And many evangelicals historically in this country agreed. They didn't want government running their lives. They were suspicious of government power and its corruption. And they were, they were part of that coalition. It was the leadership that betrayed it and turned that part of religion into a governing philosophy and into a rationale for their power. And then they abused it. But without that critical uh, leverage, it would not have occurred. And the rise of the religious right, which was propelled by your magazine and supported by your magazine um, in the 90s. He's talking about the New York Times magazine. (laughs) (laughs) The Weekly Standard was founded to promote fundamentalist religion and big government politics. (laughs) And that is what is achieved. We are living in the the wreckage. Weekly Standard magazine. We're about out of time. David, go ahead and respond. No, no, no. Let's have another question. No, no. We we actually are out of time. I want to thank Andrew Sullivan for coming here to talk about the conservative soul. And I want to thank David Brooks for a vigorous and cogent critique, and uh, I invite you all upstairs to buy a book and have lunch.